I'll read Acts 17, verses 24 and 25. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Father, please open your word to us through the words of our pastor, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Here's one of the accusations that atheists sometimes throw at Christians. Your God is selfish. All he wants is recognition, glory, attention, worship. He commands you to be self-sacrificing, but he wants everything for himself. Uh, Here was a recent uh, quote from a blog I'm having trouble seeing the Christian God as anything other than totally narcissistic and self-centered. Here is a quick outline of why. God values his own glory and honor over the well-being of humans. God chooses himself over people for his own benefit. God is selfish. Uh, What are we to think of that besides that it's wrong? Uh, There are Christians who've uh, expressed doubts about that, you know, when everything seems to be focused on God and God is asking things to be done for His glory. They wonder, you know, is that selfish? I was reading on one Christian blog, so God is selfish, get over it. But I don't think that's the right answer. I don't think it's the right answer. Selfishness is one of the great sins that ruins humans and that God repeatedly speaks against. And in the book of Philippians, he admonishes us to imitate the selflessness of God the Son who gave himself for us, who humbled himself in becoming a man. So uh, if we were to assert that God is as uh, selfish to the core of his being as we humans tend to be, we'd have really a major problem in the scriptures. There are two answers to this accusation, and the first is that God is not a solitary person, but He is a trinity. Now, in the Islamic conception of God, God is only one person, and if God was love in their system, the only person that He could love before there was a creation would be Himself. Where else would uh, His love go? And so it would be a self-directed, self-oriented love that would lead to selfishness, But since God is a trinity, we see a totally different character to his love, and it's called agape love, which means a self-sacrificial, a self-giving love. The Father loves the Son and the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the, uh, the Son and the Father. The Father, you see, deflecting praise to the Son. This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Mark 9, verse 7. On another occasion, he said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Father gives very generously. He gives to His Son glory, a world, a people. He gives to the Son all things. Uh, His love is always outgoing and sacrificial. In fact, there is nothing that the Father had in His hands that He did not give to the Son according to the Scripture. But you see, the Son has the same kind of uh, love. All of the things that uh, the Father gave into the Son's control, He says, He gave to the Spirit. And then at the second coming, He's going to give them back up to the Father again. The Son honors the Spirit so much that He says that if you blaspheme the Spirit, you can blaspheme Father and Son and be forgiven, but if you blaspheme the Spirit, you will never be forgiven. 
And what is the Spirit's passion? It is to lift up and glorify the Son. And so, you see, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit always flowing out to each other in praise and fellowship and glory. Why is it that the Son is so many times saying that every one of us needs to glorify the Father? It's because that's the passion of His heart. Why is the Father wanting us to glorify the Son? Because that's the passion of His heart. And it's because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are so God-centered that they have created everything to be God-centered. That is not selfishness. That is considering the interests of each other person in the Trinity to be better than their own. It's the antithesis of selfishness. The second answer is the answer given in our text here. How could God be selfish when He needs nothing? Uh, Look at verse 25 again. Nor is He worshipped with men's hands as though He needed anything, since He gives to all life, breath, and all things. Uh, This is known as the doctrine of aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. And it's a very important uh, doctrine. Today's sermon uh, flows out of this text, but it's really going to be um, uh, a, a topical sermon. But I felt like last week I gave short shrift to this passage, and I really needed to develop it a little bit more fully. Gordon Clark says this is probably one of the most fundamental doctrines for understanding who God is. And so let's start by defining terms. The word aseity is taken from the Latin ase, meaning on himself or literally from oneself, means God did not come from anywhere or receive anything from outside of himself. He depends upon himself and upon no one other. He is independent, self-sufficient, self-existent, and in need of absolutely nothing. That means he does not need your love and service and wisdom and works. Kind of a surprise. (laughs) we tend to think a little bit more highly of ourselves uh, than that. But before creation, before there was any time, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had perfect satisfaction, perfect fellowship, perfect love for each other. They had no needs. Now, why do I say this is uh, such good news? Somebody might say, you know, if he doesn't need me, I feel very insignificant. I feel unimportant in the whole scheme of things. This does not build up my self-esteem. I don't like this doctrine of aseity. And I have to admit, this is a humbling doctrine. God doesn't need me? You've got to be kidding. But once we are humbled, it is an incredibly encouraging doctrine. Can you imagine how awful it would be if you found out that the only reason God said that he loved you is because he needed you? and He wanted to use you and manipulate you. Uh, You've probably all had relationships where you thought somebody loved you, and yet the whole time they were using you, and as soon as you ran out of things that they could use, they were on to somebody else. Well, if it was not for the doctrine of aseity, you could misunderstand God as being the greatest user of all. And I have read books that claim that God created us because He was lonely and He needed fellowship. And it was worth the risk to him to have people reject him. He gave them free will so that he could have fellowship, they say. But by giving them free will, they could choose hell, and that would be their choice. And so the tragedy of hell is just a side note to this need of God for fellowship. Well, that atheist site that I went on to this past week, I think rightly criticized that as being a concept of selfishness. The Scripture says, no, God was never lonely. 
He had perfect fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A need has not been a good basis for uh, uh, relationships on a human level, uh, not a strong uh, uh, basis. But with God, Scripture says it's absolutely not the basis of His relationship uh, with us. Another example, can you imagine how frightening it would be to discover God couldn't do certain things in your life because He had needs and insufficiencies? Rabbi Harold Kushner's book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, sees God as having needs, inefficiencies, and insufficiencies. He said, bad things do happen to good people in this world, but it is not God who wills it. God would like people to get what they deserve in life, but He cannot always arrange it. Even God has a hard time keeping chaos in check and limiting the damage evil can do. And so perhaps your financial deal fell through because God just didn't have enough time or resources to make all things work together for your good. If He had just more time and could have gotten a few more cooperative people, yeah, He could have made Romans 8 work to you. But uh, the Scripture is very opposite. It's Romans 8.28 works because of God's aseity as well as all of His other attributes. The aseity of God is a critically important doctrine, and yet it is a doctrine that evangelicals have been more and more denying all the time. I'll be giving you some examples today, but let me start with a quote on prayer. And this is from actually what I think is a wonderful book on prayer. I've really valued it. But he made a disastrous mistake when he made this comment. He said, The fact remains that when we pray for others, somehow or other, it opens the way for God to influence those we pray for. God needs our prayers or He would not beg us to pray. And we could quote many people along those same lines. People sometimes say that God needs our worship or our service, but what does this text say? Take a look, beginning at verse 24. God who made the world and everything in it. Now, just think about that for a sec. If God made absolutely everything, matter is not eternal. It's something that He just created and He did it just like that, then that indicates that creation is dependent on Him, but He's not dependent upon creation. That's a part of His aseity. Since He is Lord of heaven and earth, as Lord He is not dependent, and does not dwell in temples made with hands, so He's not limited by space. He doesn't have to be in the right place at the right time. He's everywhere uh, all the time. But notice verse 25 nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. And let me repeat that phrase, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. God says he doesn't need our worship in this passage. The only reason you could worship is because God gave you the breath and the life and the all things to be able to worship him. There isn't anything you can give to God that God has not already given to you. Scripture says, you love Him because He first loved you. In Luke 17, verse 10, Christ says, So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Now, if Christ commands us to say we're unprofitable servants, it means we're unprofitable, right? We don't bring any benefit to Him. He gains no nothing from Him. We don't add to Him at all. Uh, with the things that we are doing, it profits us, but he says we don't profit him a bit. We're unprofitable servants. Turn with me to Psalm 50. 
And I think this is another great passage that uh, puts us in our place when we think a little bit too highly of ourselves. Uh, God commanded the Israelites to offer up sacrifices, so it is a duty. We're not questioning that here. But when they offered up their sacrifices, the way that they did it was not out of love and gratitude to God for what He has provided. It was to manipulate God. In effect, they were saying, look, we've made all kinds of sacrifices for you, Lord. When are you going to come through for us? When are you going to uh, give to us back equivalent to what we have given to you or perhaps more is what they're looking for. And so beginning at verse 8, he says, I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house nor goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Uh, we are the only ones who benefit by glorifying God. He needs nothing. He doesn't need your gifts. Romans 11 verse 35 says, Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? God is never indebted to you because you have put money into the offering plate. In fact, the, the things that you put into the offering plate or the other ways in which you serve Him, He's already given every dime of those things to you in the first place. You're only giving back a portion of what uh, He has given to you. So we're not owners. We are merely stewards. And so if you think that you're gaining God's favor in some way by giving to Him sacrificially, you're mistaken. It's a love relationship, not a merit relationship. Now, I'm very grateful that God, out of the overflow of, the, of His heart, when He gives to us, enables us to give back to Him. And He does that even though He has no needs. It's sort of like a father. A father has no need of the love note that's been scribbled by his three or five or six-year-old daughter and you know, so proudly given to the dad. This is for you, dad. He delights in that even though he doesn't need it. And even though he doesn't need it, the daughter delights in giving that card to him. Why? Because it's driven by love, not by need. Job 22, verse 2 says, Can a man be profitable to God, though he who is wise may be profitable to himself? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous? Or is it gain to him that you make your ways blameless? A God doesn't gain from our wisdom or from our righteousness. We add nothing to him. And so there's a certain sense in which this doctrine makes us feel very, very small. We don't earn God's favor. But actually, that's a liberating doctrine. We don't earn God's favor. And we never could. And the world's not going to fall apart when we flub up. John 2, verse 25 says about Jesus, And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Now, why are we commanded to engage in evangelism and testify to his name? Does he need us to be testifying to his name? And the answer here is no. He needed no one to testify of him. So why does he command us to do it? It's for entirely different reasons than for his need. He could just in a snap of the fingers evangelize all of the elect uh, anytime that he wanted. He wouldn't need our testimony. 
Our testimony is significant, but it becomes significant because God makes it significant. It's a God-centered rather than a man-centered reason. Now, you can study some of the other uh, passages in your outline on your own. I'll skip over some of them. Um, I do give passages there that show how the idols of man need man in some way. They're beholden to man, and that's one of the reasons why we like uh, idols. Uh, Those idols need us. We want to be needed. And yet God says He does not need us, and that's humbling. The outline points out that an aspect of aseity is that God owns everything in this universe, and He does not owe you anything does not owe you anything. Now, that may raise the hackles on your flesh because our flesh tends to think everyone owes us. And uh, we, uh, in our prayer life, tend to think that God definitely owes us. And it's so easy for our flesh to fall into this, uh, into this trap. Even righteous Job fell into that trap. He began to think, God owes me an explanation. This is just not right. He got a little bit upset with God and was demanding an answer. And here's how God addressed him on this issue. He said, no, I owe no one anything. Everything under heaven is mine. Job 41, verse 11. Now, if God owes us nothing, that means that when he makes a promise in his word, he is obligated to keep that promise simply because of his word. It's His obligation, not because we have been so good or we have contributed something to Him. Uh, It was totally self-giving. As Acts 17 says, He gives all things. Now, I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. This is not in your outlines if you're trying to figure out where you are in your outlines. Uh, But I think Exodus chapter 3 is uh, a marvelous, one of the most beautiful descriptions of the aseity of God. And we'll finish off Roman numeral 1, uh, just looking at this uh, particular text. Yeah, Exodus 3, and um, we're going to begin at verse 4. Now, Moses was a man who sensed a great deal of need in himself. He might uh, say that he was insecure. And God's solution was not to build up Moses' self-esteem. Look at verse 4. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Now, God's solution to Moses' inadequacies was not to tell Moses what a swell guy he was. He knew he wasn't a swell guy. Uh, He knew he didn't even deserve to stand on the ground where God was. He hid his face in fear uh, of God. There is no way you'd be able to convince Moses, I'm okay, you're okay. Uh, No, what God does is He takes Moses' eyes off of himself, off of his inadequacies, and onto God's all-sufficiency. See, if God needs nothing... If he has everything, and if Acts 17 is, is, is correct, that out of the overflow of his heart he gives to all men uh, the things that he is, he is doing, then he is the one that we ought to go to to meet our needs. And so God speaks in verses 6 through 9 of all of the blessings that he has given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promises that he has given. And then in verse 10 he says, Come now, therefore, on the basis of my sufficiency and my promises... Come now, therefore, he says, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. 
Well, Moses just is all of a sudden blown away. I'm going to be taking them out of Egypt. There is no way I can do this, Lord. And he's going to come up with excuse after excuse as to why he is inadequate. He's got all kinds of needs. No way can I do this. First excuse is in verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he's saying, I'm needy. I can't do this. What does God say? He says, I will certainly be with you. Is that selfishness? That is not selfishness. That's agape love. That's self-giving, sacrificial love. In effect, he is saying, I know you're inadequate, Moses, but I'm going to give to you everything that you need. I will be with you. It doesn't matter how weak you are. What matters is how strong I am. Well, Moses is not convinced by God's sufficiency at this point, and he comes up with excuse after excuse, which we won't go over. One of the excuses is, I stutter. I can't speak very well. And, and God says, I made your mouth. You know, uh, I made you the way you are for a given reason. Are you thinking I can't come through on your behalf? And so constantly, with each excuse, he brings Moses back to his sufficiency, which is captured in the name I am. And uh, I want to just look at verses 14 through 15 because I think this summarizes the doctrine of aseity so well. 14 through 15. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord, anytime you see in the New King James, Lord with all capital letters, that's Jehovah or Yahweh is the way some people pronounce it. Yahweh, God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial uh, to all generations. And so central to God's character and being is that He is eternally present and self-existing. He didn't come from others, He just is. He exists eternally and independently of all others. And so when Christ used that title, I am for himself, the Jews knew exactly what he was saying. When he said, before Abraham was, I am, they knew he was claiming to have aseity, to be very God of very God, and they picked up stones to stone him. But wrapped up in the name I am and its sister word uh, Yahweh or Jehovah is God's lordship over all, his self-sufficiency, his aseity. And I want you to notice that the text doesn't say, I will become, but I am. If he had said, I will become, then God would have need. He would have the need of developing, of growing, uh, like some of the, well, all of the openness of God uh, theology heretics say, that God is constantly developing and changing. And, and, uh, but he didn't say, I will become. He says, I am. And because God has no needs, He can convince Moses that He can supply any need that Moses might have. So, are you weak? I am the Almighty. Are you in bondage? He says, I am the Redeemer of Israel. Are you sorrowful? Are you uh, uh, just uh, uh, going under with uh, fears and sorrows? Well, He says to him, I am your comfort. I am the joy of your salvation. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the light of the world. I am the first and the last. I am the deliverer. I am the true and the faithful one. And you could fill in any of the other I am's that Christ is. He has no needs, which means that He can supply all of our needs. Now, how do we apply this doctrine 
of aseity. This is Roman numeral two. We can't imitate aseity or we would become God. This is, if you read in your um, um, uh, systematic theologies, they will list this attribute of God as being uh, uh, one of the incommunicable attributes. Two kinds of attributes God has. The communicable ones can be communicated into our lives, can be transferred into our lives, like wisdom and holiness. Uh, but the incommunicable ones, you're just divine if you have them, and you can't communicate those to us. And this is one of those incommunicable attributes. Godhood, by nature, has a saity, and it's the nature of creaturehood to not have a saity, to be dependent upon God. So we can't imitate that, but we can imitate the self-giving concerns that flow out of a saity if we have God indwelling us. Now, let's just think about that for a moment. Because God doesn't have any needs, it's impossible for God to be selfish, right? To serve His own needs. You know, why would I have to be all preoccupied with serving my own needs if I don't have any needs? And so logically, He can't be selfish. And yet it would be a mistake to say that just because God has no needs that He cannot love us. In fact, the love of Christ, the love of the Father, the love of the Son is heightened by the fact that He has no needs Aseity indicates he has the highest love that it is possible to have, the most sacrificial love that it is possible to have. God values and delights in us not because of what we can contribute, but because it's of the very essence of his heart to give selflessly. Now, in the same way, it would be a mistake for us to say that we can't love a husband or a wife any longer because they no longer meet our needs. This is one of the problems that I have with the book, uh, His Needs, Our Needs. It's a very self-oriented uh, book. has some good things in it. But I've read books that say you can only love others as you have experienced love and as you love yourself and accept yourself. The scripture says the exact opposite. It says uh, you can't even be my disciple unless you hate your own life also. We tend to love the people who are easy to get along with, who are fun, who stroke us, who uh, fill our needs. But Christ commands us to love our enemies as well. Paul uh, commanded us, Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 24. Now, God can do that because He has no needs. How do we do that? Well, the way we do it is because our needs are met in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way, as if we're indwelt by a God uh, who has a saity. In the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us, don't be seeking your own needs like the Gentiles do, but instead seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and, so he's not doing away with our needs, and all these things will be added unto you. So he says, yeah, your needs will be met, but it's only as you sacrificially give without thinking of your needs that your needs are going to be met. Now, having needs is part of creaturehood. There's nothing wrong with that. We can't avoid having needs, but God does not want us to be selfish. Our needs are to be served by serving others. Well, we can't do that apart from knowing the great I Am and the overflow of His strength into our lives. And so as long as we are selfishly serving, we want to put ourselves first. He says, God hates selfishness so much, He says, I'm going to put you last. As long as we are preoccupied with serving our wants, he says, you're never going to be fully satisfied. So we can, number one, 
imitate the logical results of God's aseity because He has promised to meet all of our needs in Christ Jesus. I'll just skip over point B and look at point C. God's aseity means that God cannot be manipulated by us. Now, the way some people pray, it sure sounds like they think if they do things in a certain way, God's got to come through on their behalf. I'm going to read you a quote from a very popular book on the gospel. And this guy, all the way through the book, indicates that God is dependent on us and does have needs. He says, when God finds us, he comes not as one who confers a favor out of his superfluity. Superfluity means the overflow of his heart. So he's absolutely denying the doctrine of aseity here. He says, when God finds us, he comes not as one who confers a favor out of his superfluity. He comes asking a favor of us. He stands at a beggar, as a beggar at our door. He makes no effort to break in upon our independence. He merely pleads that we will be so good as not to refuse the gift which he has traveled so far to bring. That heresy comes from the lips of uh, Colbert Rittenberg, and I hope we never pray that way. Now, sometimes that can be our attitudes. We need to repent of it as soon as it comes into our minds because that completely strips God of, of His Godhood. What our prayers need to be is more full of praise for who God is, more full of Scripture that we can lay claim to for our needs, yes, and more full of thanksgiving. In other words, they need to be more God-centered. This past week I was reading um, a, a reform blog where he was debating a purpose-driven life guy, and the reform guy was saying, God must be God-centered or he would cease to be God. And the purpose-driven life guy says, no, God needs to be man-centered or he would be selfish. Can you see the debate that was going on in that, 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 that whole uh, blog there? But uh, I hope that by now you can see there is a huge danger in being man-centered uh, in, in, in our theology. <clears throat> and certainly, um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was not man-centered in any way. I think it was Michael Horton who said that the God of evangelicals has become too small. And I think it's right. You have a small God, uh, you start you know, ripping away at what God is in his godhood you take away his aseity and ironically you begin to rob yourself you're not going to get your needs met instead what we need to do is we need to pray in faith for our true needs knowing that god loves to give all good things to his people and to use those things then for his glory uh, we'll just go very quickly on some of these point d means we don't have to impress God, we can focus on loving Him instead. I think God is far more thrilled with people who are singing way off key, but boy, they are singing with praise in their hearts, love to the Lord, than people who are just singing splendidly, but it's in self-seeking ways, not seeking to honor the Lord. Uh, God is not impressed. He has no needs. And when we realize that, it helps us to focus on what's important. And that's relationship. Now, there's a lot more could be said about each of these points, and uh, I think I'll leave some of them for your families to discuss. But um, point E, maybe end with this one. Point E says that if God needs nothing, this means that all of his actions toward us are self giving rather than self serving. Do we interpret God's providences that way? 
when a tragedy happens to us, are we able to say with Joseph, yeah, these guys meant evil against me, but God meant it for my good? Or do we have a tendency to say God's holding out on us? God is not being generous. He could have been much more kind to us. Do we deny uh, God's aseity and the generosity of His heart? Do we think God is being selfish on this? God's wisdom assures us that that tragedy in our lives has meaning, is not random in any way, it's rational, it's part of a wise plan. God's power indicates it was not out of His control. You know, God did not make a mistake. God's personality assures us it was not done in a cold, calculated way. And God's aseity guarantees there was not a speck of selfishness in that tragedy that God brought uh, into our lives. Even the, uh, even the doctrine of reprobation, which some people say, that is so selfish of God, you know, to reprobate people to hell. But even that doctrine shows the aseity of God. Romans 9 tells us that God endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. It was a sacrificial thing on His, on his part. Ephesians 3 tells us that God allowed all of this for His glory to be manifested in the church. We would not have known the depths of His love, the depths of His mercy. We would not have known some of His attributes of justice and His, his wrath in the same glory. And so God did it for the benefit of His church. I'm just going to skip over the rest of the applications and you can discuss those on your own. But let me end by admonishing you to grow in your appreciation for God's aseity. Imitate God by living selflessly. Let me give you a couple of examples. You may not need fellowship And when people want you to fellowship together, well, I'm not really into that. I don't really need fellowship. You may not need fellowship, but when in obedience to God's Word, you begin to fellowship for the other person's benefit, what you will discover is God enabling you to enjoy what you do not need. Uh, When you're engaging in service, whether it's cleaning up or whatever the thing might be, And maybe you're not immediately getting anything out of it, but you do it as an act of service, selflessly, like God does. Then one of the things you find is that God, ironically, brings pleasure into your heart from doing the things that aren't in themselves giving you any benefit. Maybe they're unappreciated by others, and yet God gives you uh, this, this joy in recognizing nothing is unnoticed by Him. Imitate God's selflessness. Then secondly... Give Him the glory. Give Him the glory. God says that He resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God is so humble. People think God is proud. You know, everything's got to be for His glory. God is so humble because each person in the Godhead is constantly preferring the other members of the Trinity. And there is a constant overflow of His provision for others. And so lastly, we can trust His generous provisions. I... Years ago, I read a book on the Amazon River and was just amazed by all the fish and the fauna and the flora and all those things, but by the hugeness of this river. One-fifth of all of the fresh water that goes into the oceans flows through the Amazon River. At its estuary, it's 150 miles across, and the main stream is 50 miles across. That is an incredibly huge river. And it pushes fresh water, its force is so strong, it pushes fresh water 200 miles out into the ocean where you can't even see the land. It's so far out. 
And there was a story of a, a sailing ship in the olden days that was becalmed off the coast. And they had been becalmed for so long, they were running out of water and getting very worried that they would uh, eventually die because you can't drink the salt water. And there was another uh, boat off in the distance. So they rowed to that boat and they asked, is there any way you could spare some water for our ship? And they said, just drop your buckets. You're in the mouth of the Amazon River. And so here they were for over a week rationing water because they were thinking they were going to die and they had fresh water all around them. Well, this is what the doctrine of aseity is all about. It's saying you've got everything that you need. It says all you need to do is believe. He who believes on me, who he who drinks of me, Christ says, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, you can't drink rivers. So you're just drinking a little bit, you know, by faith. And yet it multiplies. He causes the rivers of His grace to flow and to run through us. And so the more we meditate on the aseity of God, not only that He needs nothing, but that He is so generous, it's impossible for this God to be selfish, the more it elevates our faith to look to Him as the great I Am, as the provider. Believe in Him, trust Him, and go forth in obedience to His Word. Amen. Father, thank You for Your Word and thank You so much uh, for who You are. We bless You for Your aseity. Uh, it is a doctrine that uh, we want to have as a part of our lives depending upon You. You made us to be creatures who must depend. And so we don't want to uh, do uh, that which is contrary to uh, what You as the potter have made us to be. We want to depend upon You our whole lives. Thank You, Father, that we need not worry about wearying You and being dependent. Uh, we need not worry about uh, angering You or frustrating You, but that when we come in faith, uh, You delight in pouring out above and beyond anything that we could ask or think. Help this Your people to be a people of faith who trust Your aseity and live to Your glory. And We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.